heaven when she was four that makes it clear. Lots of people are going to read that poem and not see it. I hope everybody's clear in that. It takes a while to learn how to read poetry. It took me forever. Um, it's a poem about a four-year-old girl pricking herself. Lots of people are going to read it and say, what's the big deal? But if you read it attentively, I hope, you see, I mean, that's what I tried to do, show you, there's nothing going on in that poem that doesn't speak to Christ and the crucifixion. Same thing with the wind hover, you know, the bird up and speaking of the wind hover, and Kingfisher's Catch Fire. So those are poems about ordinary things, um, but they, they show Christ in the world, where ordinarily we don't see him. T tonight, I want to go back, having established that to, to help you see that, that one of the things that poetry gives us is glimpses of divine reality. And not just glimpses, in poetry we enter in and participate with what's going on in the poem. We become one with it. So um, I wanted you to just get some sense of, of exactly what we're doing and how good these poets are. What I'd like to do tonight is go back to the beginnings to show you where all of this started and the continuity between its beginnings and where we are today with these moderns. Um, Schackenberg is a modern, she's a contemporary. Hopkins lived in the 19th century, so. Tonight I want to read from the Psalms. And remember all the Psalms, all the Psalms were put to the lyre, that instrument, from which we get lyric. Because what we've been reading are lyrics. So the beginning of the lyric tradition is, lo and behold, with God. It began with um, David and other psalmists um, giving a voice to their deepest longings, the grief they experienced, the, share, the, the joy they wanted to share. All the poems, there's only one subject in the psalms. It's the, it's the psalmist's relation to God, Yahweh, wanting to see his face, share his joy, um, ask for help in his sins, his grief. Okay? Tonight, I'm going to read two psalms. Um, in the first, and I'm not going to comment beyond what I'm saying right now, so I'm just going to do this and get to our work. In the first one, the, the psalmist um, is saying um, that anything that we do in life, anything that we do in life that doesn't begin with God is vain. Absolutely vain. Okay? That's the subject. And I'm not going to say more than that. In the second one, it, it speaks more directly to some of the things that I've been saying because um, it's an expression of what happens to the psalmist when he's in exile. Because the natural place for the poet, for the psalmist, is in the temple praying to God. All the psalms can be looked at in one sense as a prayer. Each one of them is a prayer. But he's in captivity, and his captors want him to sing. He's a poet, he sings, he's a psalmist. And he finds it hard because he's in exile, he's lost his home. So once again we're reminded that the natural, the natural origins of the psalmist is the garden and the temple. It's where man stood in the presence of God, okay? And we've been talking about poetry as, as being always rooted in the garden, but aware of our exile. That is something we've lost and we long to get back to. We want to get back to that condition. I've been saying all poetry is an effort to get us to recover that, that oneness with God. 
Okay? So, these two Psalms. Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain and build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman awake is but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of the mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies at the gate. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Raise it, raise it, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall he be who requites you with what you have done to us. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Okay, it's this grief, it's, he's, he's lamenting almost that he's lost his voice, and that's what he's singing, he he's expressing it, so. Okay, those are our two lyrics for the moment. <coughs> I'm so, I'm, I still have to, I haven't figured out how to do this. Um, I'm losing my balance. This is scary. Um, quickly, last week, last week we talked about Plato's cave, the sea, and the literature's prophecy. I'm going to come back to both of those in a second. Tonight, I want to deal with what happens in the courtroom. You know, when um, Charlotte takes him, Tony to court to get his bond. And look at what happens when all of them will turn to Belmont by sea. And I know I'm going to forget this, so I won't get it in now. Um, uh, remember, Sonia has to get to Belmont by sea. There must be people can pass that off. The sea in the Odyssey, those you've read, or the sea in Moby Dick, the sea in Shakespeare, and it's played. The sea is never, or the Odyssey, I mean, to go back. The sea is a mythic image. It, it means a lot of things. It can be grace. The hero or the, um, the difficulties, the adventures where we enter a, a space that's not our own and face dangers. Home is our land, the garden, New Jerusalem. The sea is not our home. So the sea is very often an image of, uh, it's an image of shifting things taking place. It's like grace at work in the world. Okay? Is that okay? So for the sun to get to Belmont by sea doesn't just mean literally it's going to Belmont. It means something's happening in him. And for them to leave Venice and return to Belmont by sea means a change is taking place. 
because the sea is a place of change, things happen. So I want to go back to Belmont with everybody in the end of the book and see what happens. Okay. Now, um, last week, my wife told me when my drawing on the cave was so awful <laughs> that I have to redraw it again. <laughs> she was right. Um, I'm so nervous I'm going to the board right now. Everybody can see that clearly, okay? Yeah. Plato's cave, just for a second. Remember, according to Plato, the cave allegory is an allegory of life. It, it's an allegory of, of exactly what goes on all day long for every one of us. We'll get up in the morning until we go to bed and only sleep. Um, we believe, we, we take it for granted, that whatever we see with our eyes and our senses is what's real. Okay, if it appears as we're here in this room right now, he'd say, the only reality is our being here together physically in our bodies. Christian would say, no, that's not true. There's more going on. And some of it's intangible. You can't see it. Plato's saying that all of us are trapped in a cave. That's our life. That's our existence. It's only when somebody begins to question what he sees that he can get free because he's chained. We're all chained in this cave. When he, looks, when he begins to question, he discovers when he looks around that there is a fire behind him and the light from the fires casts an images on the wall. So everything we see, what's it sorry, what's your name? Pardon me? What's your name? Joan. Joan and Mary. Mary and Bob, you know, from last week. Um, it's Joan, Mary, Bob. That's it. Helen, you know? That's it, my wife. What Plato's saying is not so, that what we see has other levels of meaning. And if we don't learn to penetrate them, we're in trouble because we're deluding ourselves. We all know that. I think we all know that from marriages. You know, we know each other when we get married and discover how much we don't know. Um, so the interesting thing about the beginning is when the, when the guy who begins to question turns around and looks in back at him, he sees that what's being cast on the, the um, cave wall are shadows projected by people who are carrying books. Yeah? That's absolutely crucial. What he's saying is, books shape us. Right? Imagine somebody growing up in a closet and never having read a book, and then coming out. Would there be anything coherent? I mean, could he see anything except a blur or a confusion? Books shape our ideas. They, they shape the way we look at, they determine the way we look at things. We see through books, science, religion. If we didn't have those books, we wouldn't see very much. Plato's critiquing that and saying that um, our minds are shaped by people who write books. But it's only when you begin to question them that you can begin to come out of the cave. And it's only when you get out of the cave, when you're not bound by that world, and you see the eternal things, the things that are unchanging, that you can begin to live your life as you should. And the whole issue for Plato is what's justice. Are we really being just to each other? That's his great concern. Because the, the principal concern of the Republic, Plato's Republic, is what's justice? And we went over this last Real justice means ordering your own soul. Let me put it differently. Ordering 
your own city. Because each one of us carries a city within us. There are different people, different voices in conflict with each other. We all know that. So it's only when you begin to learn to order your own soul, when you've ordered it properly, that you can give another his due. So one of the principal truths of the Republic is mind your own business. You, you've got to begin with yourself. If you don't do that, you won't be able to bring to another what that what's due. Line it up with Christ. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it just perfectly matches up with it. So, um, so Plato is showing us that if we don't begin to question things, if we don't ask questions, we're stuck in cave. We're stuck with illusions, and we take those illusions for truth. And you know, very often we get very self-righteous about it. This is the truth. And very often those things we don't see. Um, and Plato moreover said, because he's concerned with people who write books, that it's only the poet or the book writer, principally the poet, it's only the poet who has learned to see the eternal things that he will allow in the good city. Because all other poets can be misleading. They teach us to see things a certain way and they're not aware. They don't see the eternal things. In our church, we know, you know this, we were constantly asked to judge earthly things by eternal things. That's the scripture. Plato was saying that long before, and he didn't know the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's only the poet. My claim here, and some of you may want to disagree with me, but hold on before you do, is that Shakespeare does that. That when he, he, he presents the version um, um, of Venice, and Venice, he's showing those things that are unchanged. He's going to root causes. He's laying bare the commercial regime. What he showed us was true 50 years ago, it's going to be true 100 years from now. That dynamic, the way people relate, is showing the character of that regime. If we read um, a play in France or Italy or Rome or in Greece, his language, the action, the plot, would all reflect that different regime, like the Athens or France or France, whatever it is. Um, so, um, I'm offering Shakespeare in that line that he's prophetic in that sense that he's showing us the eternal truths, the most important things to learn about ourselves in this regime. Um, now, one important thing, I mean, what I'm going to do is keep building on things that, you know, that I set out and I'll just keep adding them. So, the ultimate concern for Plato is the just soul and justice between men. The great concern of the ancient world was justice. Absolutely justice. That's Plato's principal concern. What's the principal concern of the Old Testament? Law. Justice. Okay? Now Plato, if you look at the diagram, he says, it's only when a man begins to question. It's only when a man begins to question that he can free himself and begin to find out. And you know the process of that is the Socratic dialogue. Socrates goes around the world trying to find out the truth about things, and every time he engages somebody who says he knows the truth, Plato begins to Socrates begins to question him, and he embarrasses the guy because he makes it clear to that guy that he doesn't know what he thinks he does. And their anger is so great that they finally execute him. Okay? So the whole, the whole dynamic of the Platonic dialogue, all the dialogue that 
was to get men out of the cave to see the eternal things and come back and help people see the truth. That's at the beginning of our tradition. One second. That's at the beginning of our tradition. It's the importance of learning to question ourselves, and ultimately for the question, the question for Plato would be to get to metaphysical truths beyond this world. To learn to see them and to bring them back to help other people get free of those chains. That's the Socratic enterprise, okay? But the whole aim of it was justice, to learn to order our souls, to bring that to what we do with each other. So what's your name again, sir? Larry. Larry. And I was, I thought that Plato was angry with the death of Socrates and that the ignorant people of Athens wouldn't listen to this guardian. Yeah, the yes, poet, yes. Uh, wouldn't listen to him and they allowed him to die. And no, they executed him. Yeah, they executed they didn't him. Him. They him. They killed him. But the deal was that Plato said that if you guys would open up your brains a little bit, this guy was actually the guardian, oh, yes. or you call him the poet, but yeah. uh, he was the hero of yes. humanity. Yes. And, and they killed the hero of humanity. Yes, yes. And uh, so he was, I think he was not just for justice, but it was, he was accusing their ignorance and their inability to even understand what Socrates But his concern was justice. What they did to Socrates was unjust. Unjust. They executed a man. It's, I mean, it's stunning when you watch it. This Socrates is a good man. Christ was God. We know what people do in the face of goodness. And we know our own faults. I mean, we don't have to. We care. We do the same things, sadly, you know, in our lives. But, but I think you're right on. So, But here's the reason I wanted to go back to this and, and add something to it. So you all see, right, that the, the whole Socratic enterprise is to move out of the cave, to get out of the illusions, out of our darkness. And we can't be, so long as we keep thinking, I know the truth, and I'm going to teach it to you, then we're in trouble. If we don't begin to question, we're stuck. Okay? And what we learn from Socrates is how important it is to keep open to questions. St. Thomas is going to answer that in a different way. I don't want to go there tonight, but that's the Socratic enterprise, the whole concern with justice. And in that way, he lines up with the Old Testament. That's one of the points I want to underline here. His concern is justice. So is the Old Testament, okay? And here's what Plato didn't know. According to our perspective, something changes with, and I'm getting ahead, leaving the ancient world for a second here. What Plato didn't know is that um, a god was watching over all of this, and that the god was um, tripartite, three persons, and the middle one, the son of the father, was aware of all of this and at some point decided to enter our world, take on our nature, and atone for our sins. So what happens is this. So for Plato, the whole enterprise is leaving the cave. For us, it's somebody coming down in the cave that offers people in the cave something they can't give themselves. Yeah? Is that clear? Um, what Plato's doing is showing, I thought Larry's way of putting it was really good. What Plato's doing is showing the nobility of man and how corrupt he is. He is such a noble figure. He can, he can leave it. He can question. He can discover the truth. But he's also capable of doing evil things. People put Socrates to death. What happens with Christianity is God comes into the cave to offer us something we can't offer ourselves. 
So he's adding something to the Platonic, Platonic dialogues that Plato, a pagan, could not. And in doing that, um, he's fulfilling what happened in the Old Testament. So the concern is no longer just justice or law, as it was for the pagans in the Old Testament. It's mercy and love. And it's divine and human. Man can't do that on his own, or Christ would have never come. Yeah? Is everybody following that? So, and I, I want to say this because I, I'm so aware today, but I, I just think there's a terrible confusion about all this. Um, I think it's, it's so often the case that we think um, Christ did away with the law, but he didn't. Dante's awareness and Thomas's awareness. Church, for the most part, is clear that somehow we've got this notion that mercy does away with it, like it's a separate thing. This is St. Thomas and Dante, and I, I just want to briefly go over this. I don't want to spend a lot of time because I want to get to the play because Porsche's dealing with the same thing. <laughs> um, This is Dante and St. Thomas. In the fifth canto of the Paradiso, when Virgil's taking Dante up to the top of purgatory and then meets with Beatrice to go to the heavens, in the fifth canto, um, there's, there's an exchange between one of the souls in paradise. And the, what happens in that exchange is this. These lines are rendered. If you look at the nature of the person if you look at the nature of the person killed, no person died more justly. If you look at the person who was killed, no person died more unjustly. Is that clear? No. Oh, okay. Thank you, Mary. You come up and stand next to me here. Here, look. Christ, we, we committed a sin against God. Yeah? If the sin was against God, who's infinite, could a man, if going back to Plato, could a man ever bring justice to that action? Could he ever atone for it? No way. Everybody's clear that, yeah? No way. We sin against God. So either we're going to be damned, or God helps us. So to answer that injustice in an act that's just, otherwise it would be stupid and absurd, he has to take on our nature and go to a cross. So if you look at the nature assumed, no act was more just. We had to pay, we had to get satisfaction for our sin. We had to answer the crime. Right? Everybody following? No. Okay, good. I'm trusting you. Um, so if you look at the nature assumed, no act was more just. Otherwise, the cross was stupid. It was pointless. He was giving satisfaction that we could not. He repaying a debt, being just in Plato's world, being just, repaying a debt we we could not. If you look at the person who assumed that nature, no act was more unjust because it was God. That's the great paradox and one of the great mysteries of Christianity. Okay, so. When we, when, according to our faith, our belief is that um, Christ never, this is so important, Christ never, never abrogated the law. He never did away with it. He fulfilled it. He even said himself, 
I did not come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. And it's easy. So it's much easier because this is what's going on in the courtroom. It's much easier just to hold to a law. You're wrong. Time out. Go wash dishes. Right? Go on the, go on the yard. Sleep downstairs tonight. Whatever it is. Or be merciful. Pass it, let it go. Blow it off. St. Thomas said, um, mercy without law is the mother of disasters. To give mercy without fulfilling the law is to just enable. Right? You keep what happens when parents keep passing on a kid? You all know where that's going. Addiction, struggle, drinking, whatever. What it's going to do, nobody grows up with the protections of the law. We need the law. Take it away. Take the law away. What's going to happen? Make mercy everything. Take the law away. It's going to be a disaster. The great challenge that Christ presented us with is how to reconcile law with how to fulfill it with love. There have been following. Okay. So that's Plato's cave brought into Christianity and into our modern world because Plato's going to be dealing with that. So let me stop there. Any questions on that? I want, I want to look at the I want to look at the city. Again, as a paradigm, but what's your name? Michelle. Joan? Cheryl. Cheryl, sorry, Cheryl, yeah. Okay, um, I just want to make sure I heard this clear. When you talk about Plato's cave, is it really a modern form of just being in denial? Yep. Is it really, I mean, you know, yeah. it's all invisible. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you can put it that way. I, I'm, I'm just a little bit worried, but yes. I mean, what he's saying is, Except, except that there's, Plato knows that there's an inherent wrong with us. That he doesn't understand the fall the way we do, but it's implied. He knows all of us, every one of us lives susceptible to illusions that we think what we see is okay. So the, 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 um, the activity of asking questions of wondering, you know what children do? Asking why is this so, why is this so? Kids do it naturally. We lose. When we get educated, we think we're smart. God. I mean, the greatest part sometimes that comes to ourselves is getting educated because we think we know everything. Plato's saying there's some inherent wrong with us. Something's in the way. If we don't engage in an act of questioning, we don't learn to wonder. Homer's going to say this in the Odyssey with Odysseus. If you watch everything around Odysseus, nobody's open to the gods. The, the, the great ancients were aware if we're not open to the gods, we're in trouble. Because there, it's like a veil that covers us, and we, we think we see clearly when we don't. Sorry, what's, what's, your, what's your name? Chris. Chris? Go ahead.
yes. and sent to yes. the revelation that God has revealed to us. So instead of questioning like the faith, really, it's really having faith, having that gift of faith to ascend to what is revealed. Mm -hmm.
So we, we have the technological ability to do these great things, but, um, but without God, we're also lost. We, we do the worst things in the world. So the city has that. It's not the New Jerusalem. It's not the un, you know, unfallen garden. Um, it's us attempting to live without God. And um, so often, we, particularly in the modern world, we see the horrors of I want to add one thing to what we did last time. Um, remember, I spoke about some of the things that some of the modern poets say and are revealed. Solzhenitsyn, perfect example of what's going on in Russia. The horrors of, of, of a secular world um, attempting to take totalitarian to take totalitarian powers and control the whole of man. What happens? What's wrong with doing that? Because part of our soul, we believe, is meant for God. If a state, if state power ever takes totalitarian control, it wants to control the nature of the soul. By the way, that's what goes on in Hamlet. We'll get there eventually, but. When, when a king, a ruler, wants to take complete control and determine what we're going to do with our lives, that machine's in trouble. Because the natural impulse in man is to do what? Rise up. Rise up. Um, he will suffer a lot, but at some point, he's willing to die. Those beliefs. So, um, So the city came into existence. You know that um, in the feudal world, um, the, the, the nature of the polity, the regimes, were largely um, class-based. There were peasants and lords and kings, and there was an aristocracy, and, and people were locked in those classes. Um, so from their birth, their, their ultimate end was determined on this world. They couldn't escape those. Um, if you watch the history of the West, you can see us gradually trying to get free of those influences because there's something, there, th those regimes are out of tune with the soul. That was Plato's great suit. If a regime is not in tune with the nature of the soul, it's bringing on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt people. It's going to hurt them. And it's eventually going to destroy itself because it's out of tune with the nature of the Everyone in the epics you read, Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid, is going to show us that in an important way. Um, what Aristotle added to Plato is this. In the politics, Plato says this, um, that the, in, the, in Athens, the, the notion of the, the, the polis, the city, what they call the polis, Something that's not exactly the same as polis is this. The polis came into existence as, here it is, here's Portia, as a mean between two extremes. The polis could do something that no other regime on, on earth could do. That's how important Athens was. Okay? What goes on is this, if you look at that. At one extreme of regimes, if I can call it that, are the tribes. Yeah? It's a tribal existence. A lot of Africa still under tribal rule today. At the level of tribe, people tend to leave, live at, at a level of necessity. That's where they're stuck. They just have to make, you know, live. That's one extreme. This is Aristotle. At the other extreme are empires. Um, Athens was involved in conflicts with the Persia, Babylon, 
At the other extreme were empires. Um, the ultimate end with the driving force of empires was techne, the Greek for technology, to use technical knowledge to master nature. So you look at all the ancient empires, you've got the pyramids, the hanging towers, the wall of China, sorry, right? Any accomplishments like that? Any accomplishments like that on the tribe? Absolutely not. They're living in a level of necessity. He said, "What happens is this: a strange thing happens when people reach a point where what drives them is what Aristotle called a division of labor. When one guy makes shoes, one guy makes roofs or houses or whatever, whatever they are." Um, and money comes into existence to make it possible for them to um, adjust services between themselves, right? Because it's going to cost more to make a house than it is to make a pair of shoes. Um, it's a way of commuting, of adjusting value. Because once that division of labor takes place, this is the most important thing. A freedom opens up for man that doesn't happen with the tribe or the empire. When you hear the stories, sorry, when you hear the stories about um, the building of the wall of China or a pyramid, do you ever recall anybody in any of the scriptures name an individual person by name? The individual doesn't come into existence. And in a tribe, even if the individual's named, um, he's always kept at the level of necessity. Having to hunt, eat, you know, move with herds of. In the polis, that changes. With that division of labor, a freedom opens up with man. And what, what's, why is that important for Plato and Islam? Because with that freedom, man can begin to philosophize. He can read and write. By the way, let me Sorry. You know, my soapbox here. So, how well are we using our freedoms today in America? Stop there, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> So the whole purpose of freedom for Aristotle and Plato was that man could begin to philosophize. He could begin to ask questions and learn to grow self-knowledge. So out of this polis comes Plato, Aristotle, the Socratic tradition, the philosophic tradition, that lines up when they begin to ask questions about all these things. It's amazing to see how many of them point to Christ and how many of them but that's the polis, okay? And the other, so in the polis, it's only in the polis that a man can realize his identity as an individual person, the dignity of the, the, the human individual. In the East it gets lost, in the tribes it gets lost. It's only in the polis where people work together to help each other grow, to fulfill their nature. Man, by nature, for Plato and was meant to learn, to grow in wisdom, to philosophize, to think about things. Okay? Now, what happens at, um, at this point for our reading is that um, you know that up through the feudal Middle Ages, um, the, the people existed in these classes basically, and we're happening. What happens in the Renaissance is that the church begins to separate itself out from the emperor. That's Dante's great focus in his work. And man no longer is um, tied or 
by the church or the emperor, the state. A new kind of regime is introduced into the world, first time. It's a modern commercial republic. Its ancient model was Athens and Rome. Its modern model is Venice and Florence. In that regime, each man has the freedom to risk his life, to determine what he can do himself. He's no longer bound by a class or a caste. He's in India or in another, or in a tribal world. He has the freedom to risk himself. Um, so he can achieve things, he can, um, he can help himself become something, people can gather together to help, and he can realize something in his character that he couldn't have quite, he wouldn't have been able to re realize it quite the same way with other regimes. That's where we are with Shakespeare, okay? A modern commercial regime. So the basis of it is this freedom to risk. So at the center, at the center of this regime are two things. One of them is the freedom to risk, to protect that freedom, because if you don't have that freedom, you, you can, sorry? Yeah, you won't learn, and you won't become, it's harder to become what God gave us to be. We'll be stunted, okay? So that freedom is really important, and the other thing that's really important are laws, and we see that here, because you can't enter into contracts, you can't, Engage in an entrepreneurial activity if, if, if you don't have some basis of holding people to their vows. So at the center of this regime, freedom, laws, vows. When you commit yourself to a bond, you give your word you're going to keep it. And how does that line up with marriage? Interestingly, when you go to Belmont, that a man and a woman will give their oaths to each other and they're held to them the same way people are in the regime. So Shakespeare's showing us two worlds, Venice and Belmont, and what's at their root. So Shakespeare's going to the root of things to show us, and we've already seen. Um, what's the nature of Belmont? Antonio Sand. No, no. Or, or sorry, Venice. Antonio Sand, right? People speak past each other. They all attempt to explain why Antonio Sand and Lucian. Family relationships are breaking down. Goat doesn't even know his son. Jessica's fleeing her father. There are no marriages. What's the nature of the city, according to Shylock and Antonio? Breeding money. There are no families. Because business, and we know from the beginning, he says, we haven't seen you in a long time, I assume business has kept you busy. People are so busy, they don't have time for friendships. Friendships are fading. When they plan, it's interesting, when they plan to have a party that night, what happens? Sorry? They don't show up. Why? The wind comes up. Chance. And they know that if the wind comes up, they have to do what? Take advantage of the wind. You can watch it by reading the stock market page on the counter. You know, that is their, so, and two defining things, just to set this up now. I drew this circle on your sheet. If you, if you draw a circle and say Venice in the middle, What's outside of it? Chance. You have to take advantage of whatever. So it means you're always, always on guard. Anxious. You might lose something. What is so I know what's happening. I know why you're sad. I'd be sad too if my ships were at sea. If I went into church and saw the altar, I'd be sad. Where should his mind be? We've already been there. They can't get their mind off business because that's what they depend. We're in back in Enoch's world. Man trying to live without God. Try to control everything. 
So around the Venetian world is chance. If you look at Belmont, we'll see this tonight. If you watch what's around them, it's music. It's the music of the spheres. It's an order and a harmony. And it's to that world that everybody returns at the end. So Shakespeare's showing us two worlds um, that are dealing with this fundamental problem of justice and, and what to do about Antonio's life. So those are the, those are the just continuing to, to do this work that we're doing in the city and the, the cave. Okay? I, what I'd like to do now is, um, I left you all last week with this question. How does, how does, um, how does Portia deal with this? I, I think everybody's clear if you've been reading. You know that if, um, if Shylock gets his bond, Antonio's dead. If he dies, the, the commercial regime's dead. If the Christians get their way and he's let off, the regime's dead. Because who's going to enter a new contract? Not, if they're not binding. And nobody from the regime can answer this. This woman from Belmont, Belmont comes into this regime and she does something nobody else can. So two major questions. Um, what is it that Portia does? And why a woman? Why a woman, okay? So let's turn to the book. Can, we, can you all turn to Pixar 4? If that doesn't answer, let me give you more. What if my house be covered with a rat? 
and I'd be pleased to give 10,000 ducats to have a band. What are you, are you answered yet? Some men there are that love not a gaping pig. You know, you can go to a democracy, people, <laughs> if you see, you know, a car will drive up with the, the radio 10 times louder, and I'd like to roll my window and say, you know, roll down the window. You can't say that, because he's going to say, who are you to tell me how to use my freedom? That's, that's part of what we take on in a democracy. People can do whatever they want. Shylock's saying, don't tell me what to do. I've got the protection of my law. Um, now for your answer, as there's no firm reason to, to be rendered why he cannot abide a gaping pig, why he, a harmless necessary cat, why he, um, a swollen bagpipe but of force must yield to such inevitable shame as to offend himself being offended, so I can give no reason, nor I will not. More than a lodged hate and certain loathing I bear Antonio, that I followed us, the losing suit against him. Are you answered? Shylock goes on, I'm not bound to please you with my hand, I have to please you. The sign of do not all men kill, do all, do all men kill the things they do not love? That's a perfectly rational response, yeah? The fact that you hate somebody, does that mean you justify killing him? Shylock, hate any man the thing he would not kill? He's using his reason to answer. What's really interesting here, both men are using reason. There's this wonderful line in Dante, in his poem, Lubitra um, where he describes the women in Florence, and he has this, he says, the women who have the intelligence of love. Now just for a moment, contemplate on the, the different way in which a person would use reason if their motives were love, rather than hate or vengeance or getting back or wanting to get ahead or be superior or defeat somebody. I mean, listen to the political parties today. I mean, you can't miss it. They're all using reason. Yes? Are the motives the same? Can you hear the difference between somebody whose motives are love or prudence or temperance or virtue and somebody who wants power? What Shakespeare's showing us is the way in which people use reason when they have the protection of the law. That's what Shylock's doing. Um, on about line 87, what judgment shall I grant? Doing the wrong. I'm not doing the wrong. You have among you many a purchased slave, which like your asses and your dogs and mules, you use an abject and slavish parts. Shall I save you? Let them be free. This is a serious critique. I think he's right. You've all got slaves. What if I went around and loosened them? How would you feel then? Because they have those slaves by law. Shylock's right right now. He's pointing to, to a fault in the Christians. You know? It's a wonderful tension that Shakespeare's showing us um, about line 140. Um, Repair thy wit, but you, the Lord, will fall to cure's room. I stand here for all. Now it's at this point that Portia enters and she says, 170, which is the merchant and which the Jew. She, um, she says to um, Shylock, this is one of the most famous speeches in all of Shakespeare. You've probably all heard it. The quality of mercy is not strained. Droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that give and him that takes his mightiest and the mightiest. It becomes the throne of monarch better than his crown. His scepter show the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty. Where in the sin of dread and fear of kings, but mercy is above the sacred sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute of God Himself. 
And earthly power doth then show like as God, when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, she says, consider it. And notice her words is mercy seasons justice. She, is it clear? She can't do away with justice here. She knows that. She's got a good mind. Is everybody clear? Her words here, mercy seasons it. And she attributed it. She gives it a quality that's divine. This, remember, there's a Christian backstory on this. Um, the Sanyo 2.13 I beseech you, rest once the law to your authority. He's a Christian. What's he saying? Do away with it. Get the law out. Spare him. Rest once the law to your authority to do great right, to do a little wrong, and curb this cruel devil of his will. Portion it must not be. There is no power in that can alter the decree established to 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 be recorded for a precedent, and many an error by the same example of rushing to the state. And I, mean, I can't read these, by the way, without thinking of our family lives. I believe every day every one of us is faced with a decision what we do with each other. We can, we can be Old Testament and be harsh, unforgiving in the law. We can let it go. If we let it go, it's a bad example. If we just make mercy, replace it, we're done. The great task that Christ left us is reconciling law with mercy. Justice with mercy. Law with love. So the task she's facing here is tremendous. Nobody is stepping forward from Venice, nor the Lord. She comes forward. Um, now, <laughs> look at this, because this is a setup for at fine. Um, but Antonio gives his life if he says it's yours. I'm glad to do it. Um, Repent nothing. I'm glad to have done this for you. Bassanio, this is on line 280. Antonio, I'm married to a wife which is as dear to me as life itself. But life itself, my wife and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. I would lose all. I sacrifice them all here to this devil to deliver you. Your wife will give you a little thanks for that. She replied to hear you make the offer. That's unfortunate. Remember, he doesn't know it's his wife right next to him. <laughs> Larissa, Graziano, I have a wife who I protest my love. I wish she were in heaven, so she could, so she could entreat some power to change this earth. Like, is there any other story? <laughs> what woman would like to take, shake her husband right now? You know, um, take me for granted? Do you like that? Use me like <laughs> Presume on me that way? I have a wife who I protest my love. I wish she, I wish she were in heaven, so I could entreat some power to change this curse. Jew, Nerissa, to suppose you offer it behind her back, the wish would make an unquiet house. Let me stop for a second. What's wrong with these Christian men? Uh, being naughty, I don't know. Sorry? I'm just saying They're what? Yeah. <laughs> They're too light. Yeah. They really are too. And don't we, I mean, one of the, what we're going to see in this whole thing, if, when we put it together, one of the things this regime encourages is people to take each other for granted. They've got money on their mind. We've been seeing it from the beginning. And, and, and notice the motive. They love Antonio. They love their wives. I, I don't have a question about that. But the ease with which they say these men, they're married. Um, I'm married, which is giving me but, uh, by my, but life, my wife, and all the world are not worth more than. What wife would be glad to hear that? Andrew, I hope you're hearing 
Everybody's, everybody okay? So Shakespeare is not just showing that there's conflict, he's, he's showing us deeper things about this regime, okay? Over this issue of law, justice, and mercy. Portia comes out and said, and, and if you, you can, you, I'm sure you saw it as you read it, Shylock is sharpening his knife. I mean, he's like somebody about to feast on something. He's almost licking his chops. Portia said, get your knife ready, you know, to take it. Um, um, but then she says, okay, no, he's got his knife out. She's saying, cut. She's so good. She says, cut, take a cut. Um, first she says, get a cloth so you can catch the blood. And he says, is that necessary? And she says, no. So she, she says, go ahead. And then she says, about line 300, tarry a little, there's something else. This bondage give thee here no jot of blood, the words expressing are a pound of flesh. Take then thy bond, take down thy pound of flesh, but in the cutting of it thou dost shed one drop of Christian blood, thy lands and goods are by the laws of Venice confiscated under the state of Venice. Now watch, this is to Sam, upright judge, Mark Jew. He's going to go on to say, when, when the tables get turned, he's going to say, hang Shylock. this he just asked for mercy. This is a Christian. He just asks for mercy. When, when Portia turns the tables, how ready is he to show mercy to Shylock? Not at all. Um, Graziano, the second Daniel, the Daniel Jew. Now, infidel, I have you on the hip. Why doth the Jew pause? Take thy forfeiture. Give me my principle and let me go. Graziano, a Daniel still, I say, a second Daniel. I mean, they're just relishing the moment. Um, Shylock wants to get out of the courtroom, and then Portia says, according to the law, when any alien attempts the life of another to murder another, his life is forfeit, according to the law. So now, he's in judgment. Um, and under judgment, um, he can be executed. He can also be forced to give up half of his property to the state, half to Antonio. And Portia turns to Antonio and says, what will you do? How much um, Portia is about line 3. What mercy can you render him, Antonio? Look at Graciano. A halter grabs. Hang him. Does everybody see the ironies going on here? This is the man five minutes earlier said, show Antonio mercy. Shylock, I mean, Portia just turned the tables now, and Shylock's under judgment. How ready is Graziano to show mercy, or, or even any of them there? So please, my lord, the duke, and all the court to put the fine for a, a given. I'm content, so he will let me have the other half of the news to render it. So he lets go of it upon his death unto his death, so long as he gives half to uh, Lorenzo, who's marrying Jessica. He will let it go, except for one more thing. Um, two things provided more, that for this favor he presented to become a Christian, the other that he do record a gift here in the court of all his, all his dies possessed unto his son by Lorenzo and his daughter. So he will spare his life, let him keep half the property, so long as he converts and gives the other half to um, Lorenzo and his daughter. You know that that's a, I mean, it's, it, it's a, well, I mean, he wanted Antonio killed. Now he's subject to death. So it's a choice of whether to die or, um, or meet those conditions. 
I want to look at the end very quickly, but before we do, I've got to ask you this question. Um, we've got to look at Belmont before we leave, and I hope we have time. I, I owe you a half an hour. I'm back in the courtroom. I'm in debt to you guys. Be merciful, please. Um, how does Porsche do this? You all see this, I hope, really clearly. If she doesn't hold Shylock to the bond, Venice is destroyed. It's a bad thing. If she follows the advice of the Christians and just shows mercy and goes away with it, it, it goes away. Either holding to the bond too strictly or showing mercy is going to kill the city. It doesn't reconcile justice with mercy. That's why I've been talking about this. It doesn't reconcile law, Old Testament, with love, New Testament. Yeah? What does she do? Quiz time. Larry, right? Yes. Well, she uses the law to the nth degree. What she does, she presses the law all the way. Shiloh doesn't press the law all the way. No, no. What's the difference? The law becomes what Shylock was not aware of was the fact that he was going to draw blood. Another law. Mm -hmm. And she used law on top of law to make it impossible for Shylock to go forward. Because the way to get rid of a bad law is enforce it to the max. <laughs> Anybody else? Sorry, what's your name? Melody. Melody? Yeah. Melody. Melody. Melody, sorry, Melody. says, take a pound of flesh, but um, draw one ounce of blood, and she goes to the minute of the minute. Do you take one ounce of blood? Anything beyond, I mean, she's getting, I mean, what Larry, you know, go to the end degree. She makes that decision, and he can't do anything about it, because if he cuts, he knows he's going to cause bleeding, so he's lost. What she does afterwards is, I mean, they give the Shylock the decision, so when that comes up, I think you're right, but right now my question is, how does she do it? And I think Larry's got, sorry, what's your name? How can people live under a law that's unfulfillable? It's Mary, right? Yeah, yes. Um, well, to me, she does enforce the law all the way. Say again, she what? She enforces, or she is using the law all the way by saying, you get one pound of flesh, that was in the contract. Only one pound of flesh, not a not a million of the right? Not anything less, not any blood, not any hair, not anything. Only one pound of flesh. Which is unfulfilled. And she What's the purpose behind what she does? What's your name? Rana. Rana? Rana? Rana, sorry, Rana. She finds the mercy in the law. So she, what she's done is she, she's taken the law to the nth degree, as was spoken before, but in doing that, she Finds sort of the loophole, the, the way that mercy is found within the law, the way the way mercy is fulfilled by yeah. using the law. Yeah. Let me, I, yes. Let me put it this way. 
In a platonic world, the law is ultimately negative, it's punitive. According to Aristotle, this goes to your point, the end of the law is the good of man. The good of man. Does she break the bond? No, she doesn't. What she's got to do is find a way to help that law fulfill itself. So it's not um, impossible. It's going to take a mind clever enough to hold itself to the letter of the law and still achieve justice, goodness, a mercy, a goodness. Could anybody... Remember, Portia comes from Belmont. She studied, she knows her songs. She, she works hard at living in the mean. She tries to be virtuous. Her mind is shaped that way. Could anybody without that understanding have done that? Or would they have been arrested? Hold up legalistically, have his bond, let it go. What she does is extraordinary because what she sees, what she understands, I think because she understands the philosophic tradition, is that the end of things is the good of man. And the question is, how intelligent are you in working to attain that good? And she does. And what she does, and then, and then holds Shylock bound to the law. Um, in what she does in return. I want to leave this here because we're almost out of time. So just remember, okay, so what's extraordinary about this scene is that she, if, if you take what I've been saying, if you trust me on this, that what Christ did is take the whole Platonic Aristotelian, the classical tradition, a step farther because he brought into the world the divine mercy of love that the world didn't know. But he also made it harder because he, what he left us with on the cross is this call to reconcile justice with mercy, law with love. It's really important, I really want to say this, is if we look at Christ as abrogating, overturning the Old Testament, what we're saying is he's disobeying his Father. Would the Son do that? No, he wouldn't. We can't look at the Old Testament and New Testament as, it, as opposites. Because then it's easy to say Christ abrogated me. If you say that, you're saying he thumbed his nose at his father. I can't think of anything. He loved his father. He made it clear. He wouldn't disobey him. So everything Christ did fulfilled the Old Testament. That he himself said that. So the challenge that Portia's facing here is how, did, how did, in, a, in a regime defined in these terms, how does she deal with this problem? It seems to me she does because she's intelligent enough, enough to know the nature of man, his end, and, and given the circumstances she's presented, how to bring good out of that, which is what God does. Okay? Now quickly, because I don't know who you are more than I do. Um, turn to Act 5, the very end You know that the men come up and offer Portia <laughs> a token. And she and the rest of say, no, 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 and then keep insisting. These like these damn Christians. I mean, sorry. I mean, God, they just keep, I mean, they won't stop. They persist and finally says, okay, you're going to do this. Give me the ring. And they both get the rings. When they get home, this is what they're facing. Turn in quick. We've got Act 5, Act 5, Scene 1. Lorenzo 
The moon shines bright on such a night as this when the sweet wind did gently kiss the trees and they did make no noise on such a night. Troilus and things matter. Now, what Lorenzo and Jess are going to do is rehearse a number of great mythic tragedies. Troilus, Medea, um, Dido, um, Thisbe. Why do they do this? Because it's a beautiful night, and they say, on such a night, all these tragedies took place. I think it's to call in mind that they just escaped the tragedy. That if it hadn't been, if it had not been for Portia, this would be a dark one. And Tony, it's really important to see that. If Portia, it's really absolutely important to see that. If she had not been there, Antonio's dead. And it would have been a dark night. And Bassanio, of course, would have had to go home. Bassanio would have to carry on his conscience this man died for me. And Portia would grieve for her husband. So I think this opening litany of tragedies is just a way of casting our mind back to carry it forward. That they just, what Portia did for a tragedy. Now, um, on, on about line 51, they're there looking at this beautiful evening sky, and Lorenzo says, How sweet the moonlight sleeps upon this bank. Here will we sit and let the sounds of music creep in our ears. Soft stillness in the night becomes the touches of sweet harmony. Sit and sit, Jessica. Look how the floor of heaven is thick and laid with patterns of bright gold. There's not a smallest orb which thou beholdest, but in his motion like an angel sings, still choiring to the young thine cherubim, such harmony is in immortal souls, but whilst this mighty vesture of decay our bodies, doth grossly close it in, we cannot hear it. Music, you just can pull on. There's not time to go into this except notice. From Plato forward, Dante's got it. When Dante goes through the heavens, the only person that I'm aware of in all of literature who hears the music of the spheres is Pericles, it's in Shakespeare play. The music of the spheres is the harmony that God created in the world. All poetry is attempting to get to it, to recover that harmony. But the body can't hear it. It's intellectual. Um, if, if you saw the platonic scheme or the Christian scheme, remember, every one of the orbs was ordered and there was an angelic order governing it. So the angels could hear. So each orb had its own note, its own sound. And all together they produced what the ancients and the whole Christian Middle Ages, up until modernity, when we've lost the sense of astronomy, it was called the music of the spheres. It was God's harmony. So what Lorenzo's referring to right now is that music. And he's aware that it's there, but he can't hear it. He says, we're in our boat. But he's trying to describe it. What's Jessica's response? I never marry when I hear sweet music. Why? Because she grew up in Shylock's household. The last thing that was a part of her soul was harmony or love. She escaped when she ran away. So coming to Belmont, they're coming to a place of harmony, of love, of beauty. Um, and there's a, I mean, Shakespeare said these two worlds next to each other. So what the souls experience here is that spiritual harmony that permeates the universe. Okay. Now watch what happens. He's describing it. Um, um, he's describing what horses do when they get a sense of this. You shall perceive them. Sorry. You shall perceive them. 
make a mutual stand by their savage eyes turned to a modest gaze by the sweet power of music. Start playing music with a herd of horses that are wild? And it's as if they become magnetized, hypnotized, that's the word, just sort of entranced. Um, their savage eyes turned to a modest gaze by the sweet power of music. Therefore, the poet did feign that Orpheus through trees, stones, and floods. This is the Orpheus, and remember, if you don't know, he's the poet of the ancient world. He would go around playing on his lyre, and he would tame the trees. He went into the underworld to get his beloved. I won't tell you another time, but he's an image of the poet, um, and Lorenzo was alluding to him here. But music for the time that changed his nature, the man that hath no music in himself, nor is, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for trees and stratagems and soil. Every man, woman, should have music in their souls because it helps them come into harmony with God's order. That's what music is. Sit for trees and stratagems and soil. The motions of his spirit are dull as night and his affections dark as fairness. Let no man be trusted. If a man doesn't have music on his soul, be wary. Same as same a woman. And his affections dark as fairness. Let no such man be trusted. Mark the music. Now, what happens at that moment when he says, mark the music? Who walks in? Portia. Okay, what does that stage gesture say? Right? She's got music in her soul. Could she have done what she had done in court if she didn't to, to reach that goodness? I'm going to say, you're all going to laugh at this. I'm going to say, you're going to run me out of here in this one. I'm going to say, Portia's she's an image of poetry. Say it again. She's an image of poetry. She brings order and harmony and truth together in herself, in her words. If you watch her words, listen to her. They have, as their end, the good of man. That's what she did in court. It's no accident when he says, hark the music, that she walks in. Now, last question, because I'm already over time, because um, very, very briefly, where is, and we'll take up this, I've got two questions. Why Portia, why a woman? Fundamental question. I don't want to take it up tonight. I'll take it up beginning of class next week. Why a woman? And where's Belmont? Belmont, beautiful mountain. They had to go across the sea to get to it. They had to go across the sea to get to Venice. Where is Belmont? What is Belmont? It's idyllic. Sorry? It's idyllic. It is idyllic. Anything else? Heaven? Heaven? On earth? Close. <laughs> I, I, I think heaven's going to be more than Belmont. If we, if we trust Paul, I have not heard, you know, heard I have not seen, heard not heard. Sorry? Garden of Eden. There's a, there's a garden quality within Belmont. And it's a beautiful mountain. It's certainly more natural than Venice. I mean, yeah, Venice. Except, I mean, I think it's close to that, but it can't, because we know that the heavenly city is going to be beyond description. Certainly pointing that way. Belmont. Maybe I should leave it here. 
Sorry? Say Matthew. Oh, done. See you guys next week. <laughs> I'm past time. I have now you five more minutes. You guys have a good week and enjoy your fellow. It's a great, it's, it's an extraordinary play. And next week when we start, we'll start with these two questions. Where's Belmont and why a woman? It's on the back. It's, I think it's fine. 
Yes. For five dollars. Okay. Is your wife taking the money or are you? I'll take it. I'll give it to her. She's okay. I got this book, but it's um, I got it from the library. And I can't write. I was gonna say you wanna write in a book. Yeah. You wanna I wanna write it. Yeah, so do I. I What's your name? I hope you're enjoying Shakespeare. Yeah. It's been a long time. I do for Just like, everybody. Like 50 years. Yeah, yeah I know. So, um, yeah. my daughter, you, 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 you know, I can 